After one of the driest periods in ages, a seemingly never-ending series of atmospheric rivers brought about one of the wettest ever winters in California. That massive influx of water provided many positives, but so much water, so fast, so late, also impacted farms in a number of ways. We'll visit with a grower to learn what's next in the Golden State. Welcome to Redox Grows, an in-depth look at key issues affecting agriculture and the people that make it all happen. I'm Jim Morris with Redox Bionutrients in Burley, Idaho, and today I'm in Lodi in San Joaquin County, a remarkably productive farming area with more than $3 billion worth of crops produced every year. I'm visiting with someone who I first met about 20 years ago, Jeff Colombini. So glad to see you and thanks so much for your time. Great to see you too, Jim. Jeff is a third-generation grower. His grandfather immigrated from Italy to California back in 1906. He has a bachelor's degree in agriculture business management and a technical degree in fruit science from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Jeff, can you tell me about your business, Lodi Farming Company? Yeah, Lodi Farming, we grow apples, almonds, cherries, walnuts, and olives. Olives for olive oil. Our company slogan is, we grow healthy food. The drought that gripped California before this past winter was quite severe, and I saw the effects of that all the time in my previous job working with rice growers. The weather situation has changed dramatically. What were the pros and cons from that barrage of storms? The cons, of course, was a lot of water, a lot of rain, a little bit of flooding here and there, but just a delay in us doing our normal spring operations. And uh, the uh, other effect was we were getting a lot of rain and cold weather during our cherry bloom. And so that did have an impact on the crop set. We're talking in May, and you mentioned to me that this time last year, you had just gotten started. How far away are you from harvesting this time around? And what is the impact of having a later start? We're about 17 days away from starting harvest this year. Last year, we started today on uh, May 5th. And so the impact is that there's a delay in getting healthy, wonderful cherries into the marketplace. And we sell a lot of cherries during Memorial Day weekend. So the challenge this year is going to be getting enough volume of cherries into the retail stores in time for the Memorial Day holiday. I know consumers would love to have an ample supply on that as well. What different varieties of cherries do you grow? And tell me about some of the more popular ones. Sure. We grow about six or seven different varieties. The most popular varieties grown in California are uh, Coral Champagne as number one, Bing, number two, and then uh, Tulare's, Chelan's, and then there's a, a series of other uh, minor varieties. What's the benefit of having that amount of varieties? Well, it does spread out our harvest, and so we're producing and shipping cherries for a longer period of time to retailers. But also, we've made a shift from Bing to uh, newer varieties. There's been a lot of breeding that has gone on over the last 20 to 30 years. Newer, larger, firmer, better-tasting varieties have been developed. But also on the growing side, with climate change and warmer winters, varieties have been developed that require less winter chill 
that are more productive than the old original standard Bing variety. I really appreciate the role of research and what you just said reminded me of that. In fact, we're fairly close by to Zager Genetics. Is that someone you've worked with and how important is it to continue to have the best varieties and some updates when you can that make sense agronomically and for the consumer? Zager has been very important and instrumental in developing newer low-chill varieties for California. They've introduced several new varieties over the last several years that uh, uh, are not planted in large acreages currently, but are starting to be planted more and more because they have flavor attributes, uh, texture attributes, and growing attributes that are superior to some of the varieties that we're growing today. And with Zager, if I remember correctly, everything from Pluots, Aprium, so many different advancements. It's a wonderful company in the San Joaquin Valley and a great family. Your marketing for cherries, what is the rough split between those enjoyed domestically and those that are exported, a percentage breakdown? Yeah, typically it's about 60% are sold domestically and 40% is exported. Is Japan still a big market, and has any other market emerged in the last several years? Japan is still a, a major export market for California cherries, but over the last few years, South Korea has emerged as the largest export market for cherries, along with other countries such as China and uh, India has actually imported a few cherries. Probably our oldest and largest export market has been Canada. Sometimes we don't think of Canada as an export market, but it is a very important market for California cherries, as it is for California agriculture in general. We air freight them to these export markets so they get there timely so the consumers get a high-quality product. This boggles my mind. You've been doing it for a long time, so maybe it's old hat now, but you're harvesting premium fruit and you're airlifting it to you know, a long distance away. When you first started with that, was that kind of mind-boggling, or does it make sense in the—obviously, it has to make financial sense for you, but from a layperson perspective, that sounds like quite a journey. It is quite a journey, but a lot of these export markets value fresh fruit, particularly cherries, more so than, than consumers in the United States, and they clearly pay more— for their cherries because it's not inexpensive to air freight fruit to a, a faraway country. Tell me a little bit about how labor intensive it is to harvest the crop. Cherries are extremely labor intensive because each cherry has to be picked by its stem and then placed gently in the bucket. It takes hundreds of pieces of fruit to fill up a bucket and there's somewhere between two and three thousand cherries on each tree. So it's extremely labor-intensive. Uh, typically, we need about 200 people to harvest our crop each year, and we're not an, a large cherry grower. So there's thousands and thousands of people employed during cherry harvest. I noticed when I came to your office, there were business cards of a variety of foremen working here. There was also art up of a female farm worker harvesting cherries. The value of this and the hardworking nature and anybody you want to cite on this, I'd love to know more. They are very unheralded in agriculture. They're extremely unheralded in agriculture. If it weren't for farm laborers, we would not enjoy or have the ability to purchase fresh fruits and vegetables. Our success 
depends heavily on our farm workers. And we have employees that have been working for us for 40 years, our labor manager, our shop foreman, our farm manager have all been working for us combined over 100 years. They're just invaluable. We, we would not survive without our farm workers. Lodi is known for many things, premium wine grapes, also cherries are really big here. And as we were just talking, there was that famous Delta Breeze. Does that help cherries and the other crops you grow? That Delta Breeze is very important for cherry production. We also grow apples. The cherries grow very large and firm with mild temperatures, and the Delta Breeze moderates our temperatures. It also uh, helps grow large apples, and without that Delta Breeze, we wouldn't see the beautiful red color on the apples. Cherries are sensitive. You have a short window. Some years are great, I believe. Some years not so great. So if you have have an average 10-year period, how often do you have what you would consider a really good crop? Out of 10 years, I would say that there are three years where we have a, a, a large crop. Cherries are difficult to set a good crop because we require bees to pollinate the crop. And bees, uh, if we have a lot of rain, wind, or cold temperatures, temperatures below 55 degrees, bees don't pollinate under those conditions. The other limiting factor or, or the or what I should say limits us to, to uh, enjoying a bountiful harvest is when we get rain during or just before harvest. What happens is the cherry absorbs the rain and it starts to swell and then the skin splits. And once the skin splits, the cherry's not marketable. How are you calm when you have so many challenges? I mean, it's great to have the end product, a beautiful piece of fruit that the consumer can enjoy. But how do you deal with that internally? Because you know more than half the time, the odds are pretty good you're not going to have a good harvest. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've come to the realization that I only worry about the things I can control and not the things I can't control. That's good advice for all of us. And I want to ask you about that aspect. You're a student of the crop. Things like soil health, root growth, abiotic stress defense, nutrient efficiency, very important, I imagine, for you. How important is it for you to understand everything you can about the crop so you can maximize it, not just for now, but to be sustainable for a long time in the future? That's a very good question, and it all starts with soil health. And unfortunately, when I went through college, uh, there wasn't a lot of knowledge or information about the importance of soil health. And what I mean by that is a healthy soil biota. And to get healthy soil microbes, you need good organic matter. Quite frankly, any plant cannot take nutrients into its roots without soil microbes. So we're big believers in cover cropping and compost use to increase organic matter to feed the uh, uh, soil microbes. And when you have the soil right, then you can get everything else right. But if you don't have a good, healthy soil, it's like building a house without a good foundation. Some of the things you've done in the past, you've gone to Washington State, which is also a big cherry-producing area, to view their industry firsthand and, I believe, talk with people in the industry. And you've also spent a lot of time on rootstock trials at your farm. Why do all of this? 
first off, I like to visit other farmers because I don't know everything, number one. Number two, uh, I can learn from their experiences and mistakes. It's cheaper if I learn from somebody else's mistake than if I make the same mistake. I'm always amazed at how ingenious farmers are to solve problems or to increase productivity or to grow bigger, better fruit. I sure learn a lot by traveling outside the confines of my farm. That's a great point, and I think a lot of us can learn from that. If you're not moving forward in this fast-paced society, you're probably eventually going to not make it. You have served many roles in agriculture, industry leader for cherries, olives, and apples. I believe a lot of volunteer work with the Lions Club as well. How do you find the time and why participate in all these endeavors? I think it's important to be involved in the industry through boards and commissions. By working together, we're stronger as an industry, working together to solve uh, common problems working together for common goals that makes for a better industry uh, overall. Uh, And also, I was in a fraternity in college. We did a lot of volunteer work, and that sort of became the impetus for me to, to become involved in the community to help others who may be less fortunate than me. Where would our world be if everyone stepped up just a little bit more? It's also very rewarding to help others, so I really commend you for that. You're also a graduate of Class 28 of the California Agricultural Leadership Program, and I've heard great things about this program. It's gone on for many years. Tell me about how beneficial it was and also about some of your classmates. I mean, Mark Kimmelshue, I worked with for many, many years at the Rice Commission, Rich Engel, uh, Congressman John Duarte, although at the time I knew him as a nursery producer, Scott Stone, Craig McNamara, that's like an all-star list. How helpful was leadership for you? The theme of our ag leadership class was how government agencies and non-government agencies deal with conflict. For our international trip, we went to the Middle East, and so we got firsthand experience on dealing with conflict. Through the ag leadership program, we're constantly pushed outside of our comfort zone, and that's really been beneficial to me because I'm not so timid to try challenges that I probably would not have attempted before the Ag Leadership Program. Are you able to stay in touch with some of your classmates? Yes, uh, which is great. Um, The Ag Leadership had a um, class reunion, all-class reunion, back in October, and I reconnected with several of my classmates that I haven't seen in a number of years, and we've committed that we're going to get together every two years or so and stay in touch with each other. That is no small trick. It's important to do, but there are so many hours in the work week, so I surely commend you for that. One of the issues in California, and it's happening elsewhere as well, this is a beautiful agricultural area, incredibly vital, but there's also a lot of urban growth. What importance do you put on educating consumers, making them understand why farming matters? Educating the consumers is extremely important. It really starts with the children. And so I've volunteered for AgVenture and other programs where we're teaching kids about agriculture. Currently, I sit on the advisory board for Stag High School Ag program which is really important because 
uh, Stag High School is, is an urban school in Stockton. And uh, the ag teachers there have done a wonderful job. They've grown the FFA program to 550 students. I'm happy that they've grown the program to, to, such, uh, to such a large amount because uh, these are all urban kids. And so they're, they're getting to know and understand agriculture and what it takes to produce food. It is amazing that such a short drive from fields and orchards, there is a huge need for education, but it certainly exists. You have challenges, you have successes. It's a long work week. You've been at this for decades. How satisfying is your time in agriculture? Well, I don't think I'd want to do anything else. I'm getting toward the end of my career, and I look back on it, I wouldn't have made done anything different. I just enjoy farming. I enjoy growing things. I even have a large garden in my yard because I just enjoy growing things. My favorite time of the year is harvest because that's sort of when we reap the rewards of all of our hard work throughout the growing season. Harvest is awesome, but if you're not doing your homework, if you're not working hard to get that good crop, it's probably not going to happen. It is a 12-month commitment for you? Each crop is a 12-month commitment. So we start working on next year's crop the day after we harvest this year's crop. Thanks for your time, Jeff. Thank you very much, Jim. And that will wrap up this episode. You can find out more about Redox at redoxgrows.com. You can also email us at podcast at redoxgrows.com. Thanks for listening.